Hi, and welcome back to the Gastronauts Podcast. My name is Peter, and I'll be your host. As many of you know, here at Gastronauts, we are committed to exploring communication throughout the body with a particular focus on the crosstalk between gut and brain. We invite speakers across the globe to share both their research and their life journeys. So come join me as we explore the steps that go into shaping a scientist on the Gastronauts Podcast. Today, we have a panel of four incredible rising stars in their respective fields. Dr. Kara Marshall is a postdoctoral fellow at Scripps Research in San Diego, California. She studies the nerves that control our bladder. And recently, she found out that piezo 2, a molecular channel that senses mechanical forces, in fact works to control our peeing. Thanks. Dr. Daphne Hajakonamu is a postdoctoral fellow at the Imperial College of London. She studies how neural circuits in the gut of a fly, or these enteric neurons, are altered during pregnancy. And she has found that these enteric neurons are key to increasing food intake of the mother and enhancing reproductive success. Thank you. Dr. Marcelo Zimmer is a postdoctoral fellow at Yale and the Federal University of Rio. He studies how certain neurons in the brain of a neonatal mouse respond to maternal separation. Activation of these neurons induces ultrasonic vocalizations, or USVs, to encourage the mother to return to the pup so she can continue providing care. Uh, thank you. And lastly, Dr. Yuki Obata is a postdoctoral fellow at the Crick Institute of London. He studies how bacteria in our gut talk to neurons in our gut to change intestinal motility and control the rate at which food moves through our intestinal tract. Thank you. Science is a global endeavor, right? Uh, but we can tell from this conference with people calling in from all over the world. It's really great seeing so many excited and engaged scientists, but it has to start small from the groups with the people that you work with, with the mentorship that you provide from people who are just, you know, trying their first time in science. Now that you all are transitioning, I guess, from the postdoc to perhaps an independent investigator, what mentoring principles do you guys hold or what are you looking for in a trainee? I mean, I'll, I'll start. I mean, I'm not a PI yet, but I actually think about it a lot because this is the huge jump that we have to make, right? We go from being bench scientists to all of a sudden being mentors and it's a completely different job. So I think about it a lot now to be like, how can I prepare and do a good job? And I think that one of the things that I've learned the most is that, you know, just like anything else, it is a skill. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't consider that as, you know, a skill that they can build and should try to build. And like, there is known information out there about how to be a good manager. And scientists are not concerned with that, right? Because we're all excited about the science. And so we all focus on just like, let's get the science done. But um, yeah, as a PI, like you have to manage people. That's kind of your number one job. And so I think that, you know, I was talking to someone not too long ago about how she actually just hired uh, someone in the business world to teach her how to hire people and how to manage people because it's like, these are not unknown things. And scientists just kind of like wing it, you know, <laughs> and, and it ends up being, uh, it ends up making for really 
sometimes unprofessional environments and then also environments where really people aren't doing their best science because they don't feel like they're being managed appropriately. And so, I don't know, I guess just having a growth mindset, (laughs) that's kind of cheesy, but it's true, right? Like you can learn these things, like there's, you know, data out there. And so trying to actually just learn the skills that are needed to manage people, I think, and just listening to people and actually really listening to what each individual needs and not just trying a one, one fits all solution. That's my goal. Yeah, I would uh, really also second that. I guess uh, for me, uh, with a little bit of mentorship that I have given and what I have experienced, I think this the you should never think that one fits all is the take-home message for me. You know, because I have also tried to be the mentor I wanted, but this doesn't always work. So I guess it's, it's going to be a lot of trial and error. And there will be biases, so you know, for for the mentor you wanted to have always, or you had and you you really loved, or you had and you really hated. And I guess this is why um, what you're saying, Cara, there is is important. Perhaps we have to really work on this as a muscle that has to grow uh, actively. And I guess also get get information as we do with everything else. Get information from people that have done it a while back, and we respect, for instance. I guess this is how I, I plan to do it. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with uh, Daphne Carasay. I think we need to uh, to learn from people who are already in the lab uh, mentoring people because as Carasay, we don't know how to manage people and then we suddenly we are being mentored to mentor people. So it's, it's, a, it's a rapid transition. As a mentor, if I will be a mentor one day, I'll try to uh, use my experience during my PhD to do the same that I, that I received uh, while I was a PhD student to the students. And I think one of the, the best ways to uh, do science is being always highly motivated. You need to motivate your students. We know that motivation plays a critical role in continuing doing science because we're going to fail all the time. Failure will be a part of the process during your study. So I think having a highly motivated mentor that allows you uh, to do uh, uh, anything that you wanted, I think that is the key, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I was very lucky to have a, a great mentors. Uh, so I, I know I just uh, follow um, what I learned from them in my future career, and also uh, I have a experience to to teach some students in the lab, and uh, they're also great, and they really uh, like science and uh, think about. Uh, 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 try to addressing the question, not not just uh, for the for as a job. So then the very good relationship was uh, built. Um, so uh, yeah, that's I think the depend on the uh, motivation, the science, and uh, yeah. We have a question from Li Hua, Doctor Zimmer. Uh, my question is: uh, Early life isolation that you used in your model, in your mouse model, have been known to induce irritable bowel syndrome. In the mouse, I'm just quite, just curious, like whether your finding has anything that related to those symptoms that developed in mouse models later in their life, like a increase of visceral sensitivity and a difference of the kind of enteric motility, and whether your finding will have anything connection to that. What do you think? Uh, thanks, thanks for the great question. Uh, it's something that people usually ask for us uh, if you follow the effects of the maternal separation later in life, and we never follow actually. So I, I don't know. I don't know if it actually the HRP could be contributing for the development of the irritable bowel syndrome, 
but it's definitely like a, a very important question to try to to evaluate in the future for sure thanks for the question thanks next we have julia davis um, i'm calling in from boston and i just had kind of like a more general question earlier this week i was just looking at some literature and kind of like the gut brain axis and its relationship with neuroinflammation and i was wondering like if any of you kind of have thoughts on that or like the mechanisms for how that might influence other disorders like delirium or like alzheimer's disease um which are often linked to neuroinflammation just kind of like if you think that there is kind of value in going down that path and seeing if there's the microbiome does can play a role in our understanding of those diseases that are still kind of a little bit unclear on i think it's pretty exciting uh, and i guess we don't have the tools perhaps or the understanding yet uh on how this works exactly but you know, and this is uh, what I sort of wanted to put out there with my introductory bit that is so complicated because we're just beginning to understand that this microbiome does a lot of very different things. And, you know, Yuki presented one uh, of these aspects, but I guess it's it's out there that um, it, these are misregulated they, and there is a link for sure with uh, with the brain. And then all of these disorders could be coming from uh, the microbiome and then they are linked directly to the brain or their local inflammation in, in the gut that then link, loops back to the brain. And I guess all of them could have a, a little bit of, of that and, and something we don't quite understand yet, but sure, sure, it's an exciting uh, way forward to think about that. Hey everyone, my name is Maya Kalper. I'm at Duke University. So my question is actually for Daphne and Yuki, how is the microbiome changing during pregnancy? And does it, is it known if these changes are actually affecting some of the food intake, right? So I'm assuming that pregnancy does a lot to the body. I'm just wondering, does it change the, the microbiome? And can you actually change your food intake that way? Uh, thank you. I think I'm going to let uh, Yuki go first because I'm not a microbiome <laughs> expert. <laughs> I'm not sure about this. I, I, we know uh, maternal microbiota is very important for the development of the immune system and nervous system in the offspring animal. But, but in this question, I'm not sure how pregnancy affect the, I can imagine there are many change, the hormonal change can affect the, like, but I don't know. And if, for, if we take it back to the fly, <laughs> I guess there, um, there are differences in general uh, with the microbiome and the colonization and so on. And surely when flies lay eggs, they do also lay a bit of antimicrobials. So um, there might be changes, sure. We don't know if that affect, uh, this do affect uh, the way the, uh, the flies eat. Not to the, my knowledge, uh, I don't know that. But uh, yeah, very interesting uh, question, Maya, for sure. Yeah, I think uh, this is a really great question. And it made me think of, I guess, technological developments um, and how we think about technology changing over time. And a lot of our studies are done really at a specific time point or at a specific location, right? How do you expect your findings to translate across time or at different stages during development? I think each one of our talks today had a little bit of this theme, right? With Marcello's AGRP neurons having a different function early on in life. Daphne, during reproduction, you have, you know, this, uh, this innervation that has a differential effect in Cara, right? When you mentioned specifically like these piezo two neurons and piezo and urinary issues happen primarily when we're older. So I was curious as to 
just to reiterate, like how you expect the findings that you have to translate across different times, or is this something that you're interested in moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you know this audience is already um, already unique. That you know we do think of other bits of the other organs, not only one. Uh, like people normally really focus on one neuron in the brain or one neuron uh, in their favorite place or. Uh, and here we're talking about interorgan signaling, but I think also yes, absolutely. For me, the timing is is a very important element because we you you look at this MS neuron that I I described, and is very different after mating in a mated female, and I have also seen that it's uh, it's quite different after different food in food uh, being presented to different dietary challenges. Let's say, so this is also what I plan to do. I plan to see what happens in in different challenges internally but also in different times so developmental is one thing and how that shapes uh, its its function in the adult for instance because now what i presented you were uh, specifically adult neurons right that were manipulated for a few hours in the adult body uh, and that's the beauty again of the fly but you can do the manipulations earlier on and look later on what happens so for me, absolutely. I think that uh, one of the, the, the biggest reasons that I'm doing uh, this research in infants is try to understand how the neurosecrets, uh, which neurosecrets are involved and which neurosecrets regulate the infant behavior. Because what we know from the literature is that any type of early life stress in an infant, and we are talking about uh, many types of mammals, including humans, uh, leads to long-term consequences. So if you at least start to tracking which are the neurons that they are sensitive when the animals are isolated, when the animals are exposed to early life stress, we can actually benefit us to understand uh, if the neurons were involved in these long-term consequences that we see when we isolate or, or the animal uh, is exposed to our, to our life stress. Um, yes, uh, time is a, a very important factor uh, for, for our system as well. Um, actually, we are uh, recently interested in the uh, effect of the time of the day in the in the physiology of the enteric nervous system and as you can imagine it's it has a, a circadian rhythm in the activity of chronic peristalsis and on also the number and composition of microbiota shows circadian rhythm as well so we we are uh, actually interested in how the change in their time uh, affect the physiology of course we also are interested in the time the developmental time period or, or embryonic stage, uh, this is a very important uh, topic to to study. Yeah, I'd um, kind of touch on it, but I totally agree that given the role of aging and kind of how aging ends up corresponding with a lot of issues in the urinary tract, it'll be interesting to see how these circuits change, how the sensors change. Um, and in development too, I mean, both sides of the equation are really fascinating. Hi, hello. I'm Elaine Snell. I'm from London. Does piezo 2 naturally diminish with age? And in which case does that explain the high rate of urinary dysfunction in people of an older age group? And, and would that be, or is it already a target for, for treatment, a strategy for treatment to kind of replace that if that's possible? Excellent question. And it's something that I, I can't answer directly because we don't know if the protein expression changes during age in the system, but I'll answer it from the perspective of what we know about the skin, because we know a lot more about touch receptors in the skin, which are also mechanosensitive. And we do know that with age, people do lose these sensory neurons. 
Um, so your innervation density goes down and you become less touch sensitive. And so it's very possible that this happens internally as well. And again, I think that this is an entire area that could be really interesting to understand how internal innervation changes with age. And maybe it's diminished in the same way that our skin innervation is diminished. And all of the sequelae that come after that, right? You know, neuropathy, diabetic neuropathy, which of course diabetes is very common, and that leads to degeneration of some of these, some of this innervation. And it could have, you know, similar effects in the skin as it does inside. So you might get all of the reflexes, all of the sensing. If that's gone, you know, that could absolutely cause dysfunction. And so I don't know yet, but there's definitely a precedent for that in other organs. So it'd be interesting to see. And then as far as um, therapeutics, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in understanding the basic science and the molecules of how things work give us targets. Um, right now, we don't have good pharmacological tools to target this ion channel in particular. It's proving to be actually quite difficult because unlike a lot of other ion channels, these respond to tension in the membrane. And so how do you make a drug that targets that? It's not clear that we're going to have great, like a lock and key mechanism where we can get something to bind. And so that hasn't been very easy to find so far. Um, in the future, though, it would be wonderful if it could, because I sort of touched on in the beginning that this, this protein is involved in so many different sensory functions. And so it would be great to have a pharmacological tool. But, you know, if not pharmacological, you know, maybe there'll be something else, some sort of um, genetic tool or um, even a stimu stimulation protocols or something that we could do to help in the future. It'd be okay. really interesting. Next, we have a, a question from Valentina. I'm calling in from Boston, and I have a question for Kara. I was wondering if you looked at the role of sex hormones in your model, and if you think, or if you observed any differences in your knockouts between males and females. I guess I'm just wondering if sex hormones might potentially regulate piezo2 and these different patterns for um, urination. Yeah, that's interesting. So I haven't looked at this at all, but um, it's an interesting question because we do know that some of these lower urinary tract pathologies are very different between men and women in terms of what kinds of pathologies they get and how they manifest. And part of this is simply anatomical. Um, males have much longer urethras, um, so they're less prone to say UTIs, but then there are other problems that come with having a prostate. And so part of these anatomical differences kind of designate what the pathologies are later in life. So I haven't looked at sex hormones in particular, but it's also possible that kind of overlaid on top of the anatomy has some role. But I, I don't know the answer to that yet. I will say that I did do full cohorts of males and females in all of my studies. And to the extent to which the responses are slightly different because of the anatomy, all of the other phenotypes were exactly the same. So I saw the same deficits in males and females. I saw the same remodeling. Um, but again, you know, males, because they have, especially in mice, their urethras are so small and so long that um, the coordination is particularly important for them to go. So I think the remodeling was maybe worse for them. But overall, it seemed like the, the result was the same in males and females. Thanks for the question. Yeah, that's interesting. This sex difference uh, question reminded me of some of the things that Daphne talked about uh, with the MS neurons. And I was wondering, do the sensory neurons of urinary control change during pregnancy? Like, what are the parallels between the enteric nervous system and the bladder? Yeah, I, I'd say that is all open. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I hadn't really considered looking during pregnancy, but of course, that is a that is a time of like massive change. So it would be interesting to know if some of the innervation changes too. I don't know though. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, this is why I thought, you know, it would be very interesting to see if the neurons change or the epithelium changes with both of them and what happens at the molecular level because, you know, somehow this body needs to cope, it undergoes under in increasing pressure. 
And I guess in the mouse model, you might have uh, more or less pups and that also might change. So uh, I, I think it's very exciting to just have a look. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I would imagine that there are changes there, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I also wonder how different it is between mice and humans, given that humans are upright um, and so much of that <laughs> gravitational pull has a huge effect. And in mice, I wonder if them being this direction means that that is different. And, you know, the the two horn of the uterus, maybe they actually are spared some of the <laughs> issues that That's humans true. go through. I don't know, though. It'd be interesting to find out. That is really interesting. Moving on, we have uh, another question for uh, Daphne. So the fly midgut is like the primary site for food digestion and absorption. Uh, what is known about neuronal innervation in the fly midgut? How are the enteric neurons affecting intestinal motility, absorption? Yeah, thank you. So not a lot was known. And the truth is that not a lot is known. So uh, in fact, Irena's lab really did bring home this. Uh, so she she was one of the founders, I guess, in and their enteric neurons and uh, and the fly and uh, the paper the first paper of the lab described some of this innovation and our paper the recent paper also gives a bit more information about the innovation of the midcut and especially the anterior midcut which i guess the question goes for that uh, where a lot of the digestion is happening now for the function uh, so we do know for specific lineages some uh, of the aspects of their function that do go to the midcut and the neurons that I talked about today go to the midgut as well as the crop. And uh, now for peristalsis, for the midgut specifically, I guess we don't know exactly how they, uh, so their motor, so the motor output is uh, for specific types of neurons. Uh, if you talk completely paralyze, of course, the gut, uh, yeah, there is a problem, but uh, it, it's just the beginning of this. So similar to the mammalian uh, lineages, we, did know, we didn't know so much about them. I guess what is nice is that we can manipulate small subsets of, uh, of them and uncover what, what their function is. Great. I actually had like a relatively broad question for all of you. It was really interesting seeing uh, the different model systems that you all use. Marcel, you mentioned that you were planning to do some future work in guinea pigs. Daphne, you've done work in flies. Kara, you showed some human studies. And you're doing work in the mice. So I was wondering, how do you choose which animal system to use? Um, and then in your future work, do you plan on continuing to use the same animal models? Or are you planning to diversify what systems you're going to be studying? I will say that it was actually a really fortunate thing that we were able to include the humans in the study with the mechanistic mouse models. And um, I think there is a bit of luck there. I mean, to have this group of patients um, was, uh, we were incredibly fortunate because of course you don't always get that with any particular gene that you're studying. Um, so I would love to do more of that in the future, but I think it it sort of depends on, you know, wonderful collaborators <laughs> being open to open to working with us. And I think that that's a general lesson in science that if people are open to collaborating, especially across disciplines, like with clinicians, um, because of course the science is very different, that the story becomes so much stronger. And so, I mean, I would love it if that could happen in the future again. I do plan to work on flies and uh, and actually collaborate or anything else. So my, um, my drive is really coming from basic discovery and basic science. So I think the fly is a powerful model for understanding genetics and really basic mechanisms. And then the conservation of this, uh, you know, uh, other people that I can collaborate with can do in, a, in higher, in mammalian systems, let's say. 
with that being the mouse or uh, humans, for for instance, I would be very excited to work with people along along the way. But my drive is really these basic mechanisms, and I plan to work on flies for the rest of it. Uh, I think really depends of our long term goals. Uh, but I think as a scientist, we always try to contribute to the well being of the human being. Of the humans, uh, but uh, the reason I choose to move uh, to work with guinea pigs is that I'm really interested in understanding the uh, in the, the infant's perspective of interaction with the mother. Whereas we, we know a lot of uh, researchers uh, and a lot of studies doing uh, the maternal behavior in mice, right? So we don't know much about how the infants they communicate, how they how they interact with the mother. Most likely, most because these infants they are born in a tritial state, so they are really immature. So we cannot really evaluate the behavior of the infants during this uh, first few days of life. Whereas the guinea pig, the infant is, is born in a precocious state. So the animals are much more active, much more mature. So using this animal model, I think we are able to at least understand better when you, do, when you think about neural circuits that are involved in the infant interaction to the mother. So for me, uh, the reason I'm using a mouse is so it's just it's very, very well uh, organized it's very established model um, but i'm also interested in the other other models including a human uh, or even uh, hydra the, the or zebra fish because each each model has uh, own advantage and disadvantage but combination of these studies uh, helps us to understand different aspects of physiology by using different technique yeah, it was really great to hear all of your perspectives on the pros and cons of different model systems, how sometimes it's due to collaboration, how sometimes it's due to, you know, chance. Uh, hello. Um, yeah, I'm Alistair McDonald, and I'm calling from Exeter in the UK. Um, and my question is for Dr. Marshall. Uh, I'm interested to know how much of the Heisel 2 pressure sensing is, is mediating intrinsic kind of bladder or spinal to bladder, spine back to bladder versus integrating top-down control from the brain. So you have some, looks like full urination in the middle of the cage, so maybe properly initiated, but just at the wrong point, how much of that sensory detection is useful for the brain? Yeah, so all of the functions I was showing with uh, regard to systometry and the urethral reflexes, these would be spinal reflexes, right? So these are mediated by spinal pathways. And, you know, we think the sensory neurons, of course, um, are directly conveying information. The bladder goes to the urethra and the urethra actually goes to the bladder. So, you know, you want, when your bladder is ready to contract, you want it to contract against a relaxed urethra. And then similarly, when your urethra has fluid flow go through, it sends signals back to increase bladder contraction. So these kind of are classical reflexes that have been defined for a while. So we think that definitely piezo2 sensory neurons are mediating the initiation of these reflexes. But we haven't looked at all as to, you know, how this sensory information is integrated in Barrington's nucleus, which is the nucleus that controls top-down urination. And I'm so glad you brought it up because it is really important. Um, and in fact, people who study urination primarily study these brain mechanisms that are critical for release of urination. And of course, in humans and in other animals, we have tight control over this and we don't, you know, we only are supposed to go at appropriate times. And this is very important. And so I don't know yet how Barrington's integrates this information, but certainly it must, right? It, it knows when your bladder is full um, and otherwise you don't have that kind of urge. So um, yeah, I think it, it'd be really interesting to understand in the future what those neurons are sensing.
have a question from Jorge Villalobos. Hey, I'm Jorge. I'm calling from Duke University, and I have a question for Dr. Zimmer. So, Dr. Zimmer, what would happen if you play a recording of ultrasonic vocalizations on one side, and then it, if you have a pup on the other side? Would the ultrasonic vocalization would be like a stronger stimuli for the um, um, dam to prefer that side? Or would the olfactory cues from the pup would be a stronger stimuli and then the mother would go to the other side? Yeah, that's a great question. We never done this type of experiment. We try to evaluate whether only uh, playing a record uh, using a playback system in which we could play the record of an of a animal in which we activate the neurons comparing to an animal that is a control animal to see if the mother would prefer one side over the other. And we are not capable of uh, having like a final uh, result. We realized that other cues are super important. So not only visual cues, because once the mother realized there is no neonates in that arm, uh, she, stopped, she stopped interacting with that arm. So we never done that. But if I have to guess, I would say that the other cues at this stage, they will play a, a, a higher role, will be more important for a preference of the mother towards either the other cues or the uh, auditory cues. Thank you. Yeah, and we have another question from uh, Amy Shepard. Yeah, hi, I'm, I'm calling from Boston and my question is for Dr. Zimmer around the USVs. And I was wondering if not only does the number of calls change, but does the quality or complexity of those calls change? I'm only really familiar about USVs and adults, which I know have you know like a lot of variation. I wonder if you looked at that in those parts as well. Hi, Amy. That, that is a great question. Yes, we look at and indeed change. Change the, the, the part of the calls. The animals, they uh, elicit different types of, of syllables. So in neonates, they, they elicit 11 types of syllables that we know. And when we quantify the number of vocalizations in which syllables, we find that activation of these neurons uh, the, indeed increase some of the syllables. Uh, one that we found was a chevron, was, was a chevron vocalization. So we are trying to identify whether this has any meaning for the mother. And, look, and, think, and talk about the spectrotemporal features of the vocalizations. It does have a decrease in the duration, and it's, it seems to be to change the mean frequency uh, distribution. So yes, there is a change. Thank you. Thanks for that question on uh, communication. Like USVs are ways neonates communicate. And I was wondering, you know, broadly about communication. We don't communicate with USVs. So I was wondering, how do you think about communicating your work to fields very disparate from your own? How do you think about communicating to form collaborations and communication in general to inform the general public? Yeah, that's not an easy question. What we can try to communicate for general public is that we see the vocalizations of the infants as a form of crying of the animals. So the way that we try to communicate that we are trying to identify one of the most innate behavior that we see not only in mice, but also in humans, which is a crying behavior. So this is the way that we try to communicate for the general public uh, our findings. It's kind of weird to study urination. And I think as a neuroscientist, when people say, oh, you do neuroscience, what do you study? It's it's something that kind of takes people back when you're like, oh, urination. Um, and it's because I think societally, it's not something people talk about. Like when, again, I was really stunned by the epidemiology and you can pretty much bet if you're talking to an older person, they've had some issue with their urinary tract. And so it, I think it's actually... It's been really neat to see that by studying these kind of basic functions, it opens the public up to talk about things that maybe they wouldn't normally talk about, or even honestly for adults to know that they're not alone, <laughs> that, that this is actually really common and that they should seek out help for some of these issues when, you know, it's sort of not 
it's not discussed very often. So I would say that um, in some ways, urination is great and easy because everyone does it and really connects to it because it's a normal part of their lives and lots of things go wrong. But um, on the broader scale, I think for so long, especially in touch research and like doing very basic science research about ion channels and stuff, it felt disconnected um, from the public. And um, I think that what's been nice is kind of being able to really teach people the importance of just basic science. And I'm sure Daphne has strong feelings about this working in flies because I mean, I see the gorgeous, like whole gut images, like there's so much you can do in flies. And I think that, you know, conveying to the public that like figuring out these really fundamental questions, like answering fundamental questions is just about like, how does this system work? Even if it's in, you know, a simpler model organism or something is really just like the important foundation. And I think that it is so critical to convey to the public, like basic science research is how we get to this translational stuff. And, you know, you don't always know where that will come from. So you have to have a really broad foundation of basic science research in flies and in, you know, mice. Uh, I do feel like that. And I think just being in the business for a bit longer, you just uh, sort of know to filter down uh, the information that you give to people. You know, people just ask you, so what, what excites you and what are you working on? And you can start by saying, hey, you know, I, I worked uh, to understand how the, the brain works. And so, you know, of course, everybody's kind of interested in the brain. And then people are interested to find out that there are neurons in your gut, which, you know, um, it's, it's a surprise to a lot of people still. And I guess then if you talk to them and, and bring it home, that if something doesn't go really well with that, uh, you, you might have an eating disorder, let's say. So I think you always have to link things, as, as Cara said, as, for instance, with the older people, with something they have experienced and remove the jargon as much as possible. It's not very easy, I think. It, you just get better the more you do it. Yeah, this is very difficult, uh, but... Um... Yeah, very important to communicate with publics. So in my experience, I have uh, uh, contributed to make a, a documentary film about the gut physiology in collaboration with a TV program. So they, they're professionals. So we don't, we just provided the concept and uh, the beautiful image of the gut. So that was, that did work very well in terms of the delivering the message to, to many people. Just speaking of like, things in the public, uh, one of the things really just coming up to public perception now is the importance of science with the global pandemic that we're having in coronavirus. What do you think the biggest hurdle or issue that our generation of scientists is up against? So I think we are not trained to communicate. So we don't know how to communicate what we're doing. So that's why I think we have this uh, this difficulty to talk to the people. I mean, we don't have any training to communicate what we're doing to show the importance of what we're doing. I would say for you, Peter, it really depends where you are as well, because I can, I can say in Brazil right now, we have the opposite. People still don't believe in science, even more right now, because we have people that don't think the vaccine is, like, is the cure for the COVID. So we have two problems in my vision. The first that we don't know how to communicate and there's also a political vision about science, depending on the country uh, where you are. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'd say that I feel like in the U.S., politicians have pr been pr pretty good about like continuing to fund the NIH, for example, even though there might be anti-science rhetoric in general, they kind of come through with some funding. But um, we need to be better not only about communicating the excitement of science, but just like how <laughs> beneficial it is. Like, I think these advances are so slow you know, what's coming on the market now might have been researched 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And so it's hard for 
a person, and this is especially true in the private sector, to look at this and say, oh, you know, what you're doing now is going to definitely economically benefit me and benefit humans. And so I think like having a better narrative around these processes and how they are slow and it takes kind of people coming at questions from all different angles, which takes a lot of money. (laughs) And I think that showing people the output and like the human genome project was this moonshot and it was, it worked and it actually like has generated so much value, not only economically, but also just for knowledge's sake. I don't know. I think there's like the two-pronged argument could be made. So maybe scientists need to be better about communicating that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, communication is a, is a big thing, but I guess we are also facing uh, perhaps an economic crisis ahead and that is going to impact science for sure uh, across the board so some countries will be more or less affected i guess so i guess this is where somehow we have to come together and for more collaborations perhaps and and you know perhaps think of different ways of doing science which is very hard because careers are you know need to still be shaped and it's a it's a hard one but i guess you know our generation could be uh, perhaps more open I don't know. It's it's a hard one. Uh, I think if I have to just find one that is going to be the the most difficult hurdle to overcome for our uh, generation of scientists, I guess we are quite a lot uh, at the moment and very excited. And the funds are might run thin for a while. Uh, based, I mean, or not? We'll see. <laughs> I was just noticing someone asked about diversity and inclusion, and I was going to say that one of the plans or hopes that I have in the future is, you know, of course, to have a really inclusive and diverse environment. But I think one of the ways to do this is really make sure that a broad range of undergrads get a chance to be in lab, because I think that's the time at which most of us get our first experience with research. Like, I didn't know anything about being a scientist when I was an undergrad. I mean, I liked science, but I think that just making sure that a broad range of undergraduates that, you know, may or may not have been exposed to science at all, like have the chance to go through lab. And what that can do is really allow us to practice mentorship at all the different levels, right? If you have grad students mentoring undergrads and postdocs mentoring graduate students and like making sure that not only is everyone welcome in lab, but also people practice mentoring a diverse set of, you know, others, right? And it'll, you know, maybe people when they're undergrads decide they don't like it, but at the very least giving that opportunity and making sure that, people from a broad range of backgrounds have the chance to access that is good. The other thing is outreach, I think is really fun. And we had talked about communication, but outreach to local schools is something I've always done wherever I am. And um, that's also a really great way to introduce kids to the idea that scientists are real people and it's a manageable, fun career that you can actually pursue. And it's not, I think it feels very kind of elitist if you're not, you know, introduced to a scientist or whatever. So I think that encouraging communication, encouraging your lab members to seek out events where you go to schools and communicate science is a really good opportunity to both increase diversity and inclusion, but also to train people on communication and mentorship. So it's like two birds with one stone. Yeah, that's really great. Uh, I think that question was from Yeka Aponte. I don't know if you had a follow-up. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm very delighted to be here today. I mean, thank you, Diego, for inviting me. So I'm Yeka Aponte. I'm a tenure track investigator at the NIDA IRP at the NIH. And Kira, your answer was a stellar because it's about time that, you know, especially when we think about gender and we think about diversity, inclusion, that's what it makes us stronger. And I think that we always have to wait until reach, you know, the PI level to feel that we have our voice, you know, and that's something that as you guys all said, no one teaches us how to be a manager. We have to learn by doing. 
And I think that that's kind of challenging. The other thing is that I recently became the director of the diversity and inclusion at the NIH, at NIDA. And, and I think that one of the hardest and more challenging things is that, you know, expectations are really high when we join a lab, either as interns, summer students, you know, and you have to understand when you have these kids that come from underrepresented backgrounds, they didn't have the same privilege that most of us had and the same training. So you have to put an effort to really, really get these kids to that level. And as Kiera very nicely stated it, you have to start from like the underground level. I mean, if it were for me, I would start, you know, from like elementary school, but at least we have to start somewhere. And I think that this is the advice that I give all the young investigators that, you know, you have to be patient. You have to understand that perhaps during the first year, you're not gonna get any data from that student, but the reward that you're gonna get when that kid, that perhaps is the first generation going to high school and college came out of your lab, you will feel so proud and say, that's my child. You know, that kid became a doctor because of me, because the training in my lab. So, and I think that, you know, it's about time that we re-educate ourselves about our conscious and unconscious biases, because we all have them, even if we don't know. And, you know, this is something that, you know, I tell my lab members, we have to stop being bystanders and, you know, speak out and loud. I mean, I'm sure that you are all aware about this horrible paper that came out two weeks ago about female scientists not being good mentors, you know. I mean, on top of dealing with my background as diverse, I also have to deal with my gender just to show people that, yes, I can be a good mentor. It has nothing to do with my gender. So, yeah, those are the comments that I just wanted to ask. But thank you, Kara, for just stating this at the level of, you know, the trainees. So it was really enlightening for me to hear that. Well, yeah, I don't know if there's like a better way to close than that, really. I feel like I feel very empowered. You know, I feel like we have to keep pushing the ball forward. We have to keep continuing to advance science. Um, and I really wanted to thank everyone here for coming to this Gastronauts Bite Size Summit. Uh, we really enjoyed your presence. Everyone here, we really value your opinion. Thank you all so much for listening. I think science is all about, you know, this open communication, how we can continue to advance it. Um, if you think about any other ways for how you can help gastronauts to improve, feel free to reach out to us. Um, and if you want to share, if you feel like you've got something from this today, uh, we would love it if you shared uh, this with a friend or a colleague and just get more people in the know-how about gastronauts, about science in general. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. And thank you so much to our speakers. Thanks. It was great. It was thank really you fun. for inviting. Thank you very thank you. much. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. For more of our content, you can follow us on Twitter at GutBrains or visit our website at thinkgastronauts.com. The Gastronauts podcast would be impossible without our incredible team. Meredith Schmel is our producer and theme music composer, and special thanks to the founders of Gastronauts, Dr. Diego Borges and the Borges Laboratory.